Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Recently, I've been looking at the 110th Psalm in connection with our study through Hebrews, and my mind became engaged with a particular expression there that has intensified in my thinking and my heart of late, and I want to deal with that expression this morning. It's the beauty of holiness. That expression is found in the 110th Psalm. But I want to go back to the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible, the beauty of holiness. What a wonderful thought this is. And here's the first occurrence of that thought in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29. Now this is the occasion of David bringing back the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. It's a celebratory, victorious occasion. And David composes this psalm for the use of the people on this occasion. You read in verse 7, then on that day David delivered first this psalm. And you'll find this psalm that's recorded here in 1 Chronicles 16 repeated in Psalm 29 and Psalm 96. But here's a portion of that psalm in verse beginning in verse 28. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Listen now, bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. As stated, that expression is quoted in Psalm 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. That's what we've come here to Bethel Church to do this morning. Give unto the Lord the glory due. It's owed to him, isn't it? Glory is due to God. The glory is not due to me or to you, but it is due to God. And we're to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What an intriguing expression. Then again in Psalm 96, verse 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, fear before him all the earth. And one more occasion in which we find this expression, Second Chronicles 20, verse 21, when King Jehoshaphat was leading the nation out to battle against the enemy. And it says, And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. So they had a group of singers leading the army out to battle, praising the beauty of holiness. I wonder if you've ever thought about this expression, the beauty of holiness. It is, again, a very intriguing expression. Now, you and I are living in the age of relativism, when the subjective is king. In modern man's way of thinking, there are no universal absolutes or objective standards. Personal preference reigns supreme. And tolerance is the principal virtue of modern man. That is, they tolerate every position but Christianity. And they say there are no absolutes except, of course, that there are absolutely no absolutes. That's relativism. According to the relativist, everything is a matter of individual taste and preference. 
Of course, the Bible's concerned about three basic dimensions of life, the good, the true, and the beautiful. In absolute terms, there is such a thing, according to the Bible, as the good, right from wrong. The true, truth from error or from falsehood. And the beautiful, beauty in contrast to profanity or vulgarity. But in modern man's mind, each of these categories is purely subjective. To modern man, the good is a situational kind of thing. There is no right or wrong, they say, but ethics are situational. Every set of circumstances determines how you should behave in that set of circumstances, they say. I wonder why the people that hold that view think that the Nazi Holocaust was wrong. Almost without exception, they will decry what Adolf Hitler did and the Nazis did in uh, the 1940s and say that was evil. How do you have a standard to judge what is evil if you don't believe that there is any absolute right or wrong? But anyway, situational ethics is the norm for modern man. Regarding the true, they say there is no absolute truth or falsehood. But what is true for you may not be true for me. What is true for me may not be true for you. You determine what you want to believe. I'll determine what I want to believe. And I've always said that just because it's okay with the president that you believe what you want doesn't mean it's okay with God. Whether you believe what you want. There is such a thing as absolute truth. Let God be true, and every man a liar. Any idea that is not consistent with the word of God is falsehood. And it's the scripture, therefore, that is our norm for determining truth from error. And then in terms of the beautiful, the good, morality, the true, knowledge, the beautiful, or aesthetics. Modern man says there is no objective standards, but it's a matter of personal preference. Whatever, you may like your kind of music, I'll like mine. You may like a certain type of art, and I prefer another. But the motto of modern man is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What one person deems to be crude and vulgar and crass, whether in terms of music or art or fashion, another embraces and celebrates. And somebody says, no one opinion is final or ultimate. These people would say a child's stick figure is as valuable as a Rembrandt original. Or a chimpanzee's finger painting is uh, equally valid as much as a Monet. But you know, Scripture defines each of these categories in absolute terms. God, again, is the objective standard or the norm by which we determine what is good. His Ten Commandments tell us right from wrong, right? God has given us the benchmark, the foundation for determining what is moral and what is immoral, what is right and what is wrong. God determines what is right and wrong. He determines what is true. In the Bible, Romans 3.3 3 says, again, let God be true and every man a liar. Jesus says, thy word is truth. Somebody said, Brother Mike, I just don't know what to believe. Well, you can believe this book. Because it is the very word of God. It's not just man's opinion about God. It is God's own self-testimony. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. And this book, my beloved, tells us what is true. And everything that isn't consistent with it is error. And then God determines what is beautiful. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, 
He makes everything beautiful in his time. God, my friends, determines beauty. Now, let's talk for a moment about the nature of beauty. We're talking this morning about the beauty of holiness. What is beauty? If I were to ask you today to define beauty, could you do it? It's a concept I think that each of us is familiar with, but it's not as easy to define as we might originally think. The um, idea of finding pleasure and delight in a certain object, like looking at a sunset. My, I've seen some glorious ones here on the coast of Carolina. I just have to stand back spellbound and say, that is beautiful. And we know the sensation, the pleasure, and the delight that an object produces in our minds. We know the experience of perceiving beauty, but when it comes right down to defining it, it's not very easy to define. What would you say? What is beauty today? And you say, Brother Mike, there is no objective standard. It's just in the eye of the beholder. It's subjective. No, the Bible, my friends, tells us that God makes everything beautiful. In his time, he defines beauty from ugliness and vulgarity. Well, the first occurrence of the word in the Bible, beauty, is in Exodus 28, verse 2, when he is describing the clothing of the high priest. God says that you're to make robes for Aaron and his sons and the priests for glory and for beauty. Interestingly, our text when it uses the expression, the beauty of holiness, may literally mean in holy array. The beauty of holiness, what does that mean? Holy array, like the priest was arrayed or clothed in this special robe or gown with all of its embroidery and fringes of gold and the decoration upon it. I mean, the Old Testament priest was to wear a garment that drew people's attention as something that was glorious and beautiful. God made it that way for the sake of beauty. And by the way, in that same chapter, the very next verse, Exodus 28 verse 3, we learn that the first people that were ever filled with the Spirit of God recorded in Scripture were the artisans who were tasked with aesthetics and craftsmanship of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple adornments. Listen to this, if you will. Exodus chapter 28 verse 2. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And he talks about the different parts of these garments in the next verse, the breastplate, the ephod, the robe, the broidered coat, a mitre, and a girdle. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, his sons, they shall take gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen, and they shall make these priestly garments for glory and for beauty. Notice the people that God tasked to do this were filled with the spirit of wisdom. God filled them with his Holy Spirit. In fact, one particular individual named Bezalel, we read in Exodus chapter 35, was the chief among these artisans and craftsmen. Now, Many modern people don't have much use for art. We say we believe in morality here at Bethel Church. We believe in living right, and we do, the good. And we believe in doctrine, truth, we do. But we don't put a lot of emphasis on the aesthetic realm, do we, on art. 
You say, Brother Mike, there's no place for art in the Christian life. Well, again, the good, that's morality. The true, that's doctrine. The beautiful, that's aesthetics. God has given us these three dimensions. Listen to Exodus 35, verse 30. Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And God has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to devise curious works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in the cutting of stones to set them and in carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. And he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab. Them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver and of the cunning workman and of the embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet and in fine linen and of the weaver, even of them that do any work and of those that devise cunning work. Now why do you suspect God put such effort into the adornments of the temple and the tabernacle. You may notice we don't have any pictures hanging on our walls here at Bethel Church. Primitive Baptists and Baptists in general have not practiced the use of icons in public worship because the focus is the Word of God. That's why our pulpit is uh, arranged in the center, not off to the side. That's why this is not a stage, because that conjures up images of entertainment, but a pulpit, of course, conjures up images of worship. We have a communion table, and it's not technically an altar, but yet the architecture. You say, there is no art in this building. Well, I want to say that every form is an artistic expression, whether it's simple or complex. That is, it all conveys a message. It communicates what we believe, and we believe that distractions to the Word of God can be an obstacle in the life of the church, in the life of the believer. That's one reason, my friends, that we don't have uh, special attractions. But does that mean, just because our church is devoid of art, that is, any blatant or overt forms of art, does that mean that there is no place for beauty in the life of the church? May I suggest that there are other artistic expressions than paintings and sculptures. Music is an artistic expression, isn't it? And our facility, our sanctuary, and our grounds are artistic expressions as well. And may I suggest, dear friends, that beauty in the way that we worship, in the content of the pulpit, that I don't just get up here and yawn and say, well, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about the weather, or let's talk about the Atlanta Braves, or let's talk about the North Carolina State Wolfpack. If I did that, you would say, Brother Mike, we're here to worship. Where's the beauty? And I suggest, my beloved, we're to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In other words, God deserves our best effort. Jesus is worthy of our best esteem. And that's one of the thoughts I think that we learn by looking at how much detail the Lord placed in the garments of the Old Testament priest. That the priest was to wear not a t-shirt and blue jeans, but he was to wear these ornate 
adorned robes for glory and for beauty. Does God care about beauty? He certainly indicates in the Old Testament that it matters to Him. We know that there's a place for craftsmanship. Yet, the Old Testament is also very clear that God places strong prohibitions against the misuse of art. That's what Exodus 20 means when it says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath. God has put some boundaries upon art. For art is intended not to communicate who God is, but it's to reflect the wisdom and the glory of God. Art cannot completely tell us what God is like. But you know, art is intended not to be a self-expression of the artist. Abstract art, the idea that I'm just going to express what is in my heart, that's why it's discombobulated much of the time. Now, I know that intellectuals will tell me that there's a place for abstract, for impressionistic art, but art originally was intended to reflect the grandeur of God's creation. That's why landscapes, photography, sculptures of people who played a, an integral role in the lives of others, that's why that there is a place but any representation of the character of God is taboo. That's prohibited. Because just like the children of Israel built a calf, a golden calf, you know, Aaron gathered the gold and threw it into the fire, he said, and it came out this calf. I think there was probably a little more planning. Probably had to be a mold for that to happen. But anyway, it came out this calf, he said, for this is our God that brought us out of Egypt. Well, a calf speaks of strength. You know, the oxen was strong, and God is strong. But you know, the calf, my friends, is also pretty slow. <laughs> and the calf is not always real intelligent. And therefore, whatever representation we try to make about the character of God is going to fall so far short as to denigrate and debase Him in people's minds. And you know, man's nature being what it is, we tend to begin to think about God based on what we see. That's why it's so dangerous to form images Idolatry consists not only in the manufacture of molten images of God, but in the manufacture of mental images about God that are inconsistent with his word, which are unworthy of the holy character of God. We're to worship the Lord in the beauty. So there's a place for beauty. Our singing, my friends, ought to be beautiful. We ought to put effort into it. It's not wrong to learn to sing better. It's not wrong to learn to sing parts, to add harmony, and to sing a variety of different musical styles and hymns for the sake of the glory of God. It's not wrong to make our worship beautiful. It's not wrong to paint our building or to make sure that the lights stay on or the grass is cut or that the grounds are a good testimony to the community. You may know that there were old days in which some of our people uh, allowed the building to become dilapidated while they lived in nice homes. Haggai chapter 1, God says to the children of Israel, How long will my house lie waste while you live in your sealed houses? Your personal lives do not reflect your worship of God, is what he said. And there's a disconnect there between your plush surroundings privately and what you do for me. I'm sort of an afterthought in your life, God says, and he didn't take kindly to that. Well, my friends, may I say that God is worthy of beauty. 
For that reason, I suggest, though, because God put some boundaries on art, Baptists and many Christians in the Protestant tradition have tended to avoid this third dimension of the triad of virtues, the good, the true, and the beautiful. We've emphasized the good, we emphasize the true, but we really have not developed any theology of the beautiful. You say, then, Brother Mike, how would you define beauty today? I would say beauty, and this is going to fall short, but it's an object's intrinsic capacity. That means regardless of how it is useful to me as a person, it's inherent in the object. An object's intrinsic capacity to produce delight in the mind. And there are four criteria in antiquity for determining. These are the norms or the standards by which we determine beauty from what is crude. It was first mentioned by Aristotle, the student of Plato. Thomas Aquinas picked up these four criteria, and then Jonathan Edwards, America's most brilliant theologian, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, in colonial America, also developed these four criteria for determining true beauty, and they have to work together. First, proportionality. Beauty is symmetrical. If I were to draw a stick figure on a chalkboard, and I drew the head very large, but the body very small, you would say, Brother Mike, that's not, that's not beauty, because there's no proportionality. It is true, my friends, that symmetry and proportion of the ears to the face and the mouth to the head and the arms, the limbs to the torso and so forth. Proportionality is a critical component by which beauty is determined. Secondly, harmony. Of course, in music, this is very true. When all of the different parts work together in unison, and there is togetherness. Harmony is a criteria for judging beauty. And then simplicity. Sometimes the most beautiful objects are the simplest. Now, we're not talking about being simplistic, but we're talking about the heart and soul of an object's nature. And then complexity. And that's why the works of Bach and Handel and Chopin, classical music from the Baroque era, is truly beautiful because... There is a variety of rhythm and melodies and harmonies. That's why an orchestra in which you have woodwind instruments and flutes and lyres and brass instruments and stringed instruments, violas, violins, cellos. That's why, my friends, an orchestral performance, especially when coupled with vocal choirs like Handel's Oratorio of the Messiah, that's why that is truly beautiful. Now you say, Brother Mike, just a minute, I'm a country music kind of fan. I don't prefer classical. I understand. We all have our preferences. That doesn't mean, though, that people cannot hear music and say that that is pleasant and delightful to the ear. You see, there's a beauty that appeals to the senses. There's a beauty that appeals to the eye. I've already mentioned some of the lovely sunsets that we see here on the coast of Carolina. I've seen some brilliant hues, colors in the sky. You know, the, the secret of being a good artist is mixing colors. And it's a very difficult thing to master, the mixture of colors. But you know, God is the ultimate artist, and he can mix colors better than Michelangelo, God my beloved, can take many different hues of green 
and put them into a single landscape and none of them clash or collide with each other. Isn't he amazing? Have you seen some of the pink and purple and violet and indigo and red and orange and yellow sunsets here on the coast? My, they are spectacular. I've spent the last several days looking at some photography from one of our local photographers here in the area. And um, I'll tell you, my friends, I've just set spellbound at the beauty of nature that we perceive with the eye. The blue in the water. Now some of the water is sort of a greenish tone, but sometimes the sun will hit it just right and it is the deepest blue I've ever seen. And not only the sunsets and the uh, landscape around us, but you know, if you don't like the beach, you can just drive a few hours and you can see a mountain landscape and my, aren't they beautiful? The rolling hills of East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. And you see the uh, peaks and the valleys. If you've ever been to Cades Cove in the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area, may I say, it is a lovely pastoral scene in which there is a cove, a valley, if you please, between these mountains where settlers once settled. And there was an old primitive Baptist church from the 1700s that met there in Cades Cove. There's a beauty that appeals to the eye, the sense of sight. You ever seen a flower and then compared it to another flower and you looked at the different structure of the petals and the colors and the veins within it and the foliage that surrounds it? I have to tell you there's a beauty in nature that we see with our eye. And whether you're a horticulturalist or a botanist or a regular Joe like me, we can all perceive beauty in the world that God has made. Can we not? You think about the wisdom of our God that he would put such variety and such delightful pleasures to our sensory perception in nature so that we can enjoy nature. And the purpose of it all is to lead us back to thoughts of God in worship to say, my, what a great and glorious God we have to create such a beautiful world. And then you think about the full moon. I don't know if any of you saw the full moon. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday night of this past week. I took the trash outside and as I was uh, looking up at the beautiful sky, it was a clear cloudless sky, and the stars were shining and the moon was brilliant, it was bright. I had to tell Miss Lori when I came inside, you know, my God made that. The one who died for me, my Savior, made that orb that shines so brilliantly. And I just looked at it and thought, he loved me. But he also made that mighty structure up there. And, and look at how beautiful it is. It was almost like daytime. It shined so brightly. Have you ever seen the glimmering sea as the sun bounces off the waves? And you thought, my, what beauty is here. And then the fall foliage, the golds and the oranges and the reds and the crimson and the greens and see the combination of all of these colors. Diversity, yet there is harmony. There is symmetry, there's proportion, there is simplicity, but there is complexity, beauty. God, my friends, has given beauty that appeals to the eye. There's also a kind of beauty that appeals to the sense of hearing. You think about 
the nightingale song or little child's tender voice or the resonance of a melody by Bach again or Handel or Chopin. And then there's a beauty that appeals to the intellect, not just to the senses, but to the mind. There's a beauty of style, architectural form, lines and shapes. And that's the reason that certain buildings are more attractive and appealing than others is because of the beauty of architectural style. An item of craftsmanship, an Amish table, although very simple, yet the spindles are hand-carved and they're just put together just right so that there's a delicacy, yet a sturdiness about it. And you say, my, there's beauty in this. It's an intellectual beauty. It appeals to the mind or the eloquence of logic. You know, the Bible talks about that. In Proverbs 25, 11, when he says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Think about that. Apples of gold in framed pictures of silver. It's the idea of beauty, right? And a word fitly spoken is beautiful like apples of gold in pictures of silver. There's a beauty that appeals to the senses, a beauty that appeals to the intellect. And there's a beauty that appeals to the soul, the higher life that God implants in each of his children in regeneration. And that is called the beauty of holiness. The beauty that appeals to the soul, to the divine nature that he's placed within your heart. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the heart of one of his children, one of the objects of God's eternal love, for whom Jesus died on the cross, when the Holy Spirit quickens the heart, there's a beauty that appeals to what is in your heart that the Lord has put there that only the child of God can understand and the dead sinner cannot. It's called the beauty of holiness. When I hear the gospel preached, there's something inside of me that says, that is beautiful. When I hear Jesus Christ proclaimed and described, by faith I can see him as the crucified Lamb of God, the one that was foreordained before time began in the covenant purpose of God to be my representative, and who assumed my nature in the incarnation when he was born a babe in Bethlehem's manger, and who went about for 33 and a half years doing good, never committed a sin, pleasing his heavenly father, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, and causing the lame man to leap as a heart. And then this innocent, perfect, spotless lamb of God took my place on Calvary's tree and became the object of divine wrath in my stead. And I hear that message that Jesus paid it all. All the debt that I owe because of sin. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And I hear that glorious gospel message. My friends, there's something inside of me that takes delight and finds pleasure. And it's not just an intellectual kind of enjoyment that, okay, I understand the logic of what you're saying, but it's something inside the heart that was not there by nature, that God has placed there by grace, that embraces this truth and says, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. 
Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so full and free. Indeed, that's the beauty of holiness. You say, Brother Mike, how is holiness beautiful? First, because it is resident in the holy character of God. The thing that is so beautiful to the heart is that there's something inside of you now that resonates, that answers the holy nature or character of God. If I was to describe God by a single attribute, one that included all the rest, I don't think I could do any better than to say God is holy. Isaiah chapter 6, remember the song of the seraphim? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, God is holy. Now, are you holy? <laughs> I'm not. I look in the mirror and I see a body that's breaking down, a mind that tends to wander. I see an old nature in me that gives me thoughts that I am ashamed of. I, I, I struggle, my friends, with sin, with selfishness and pride and worldliness and ambition. I'm not holy in and of myself, and you're not either. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No man is holy in and of himself. But you see, to be holy means to be set apart, to be separate, to be different. The word literally means other. When I say that God is holy today, what I'm saying is he's not like us. He's other. He's distinct. He's set apart. He's in a class all by himself. And when you think of something that's holy, what kind of emotion does that generate in your heart? Have you ever gone into a cathedral, maybe a Roman Catholic cathedral? You know, they have a number of ornate cathedrals and you can go in and you see the stone columns and the high ceilings and the echoes and the, you have the sense that you're in the presence of the holy. Now, that doesn't mean that forms, architectural forms can capture the presence of God. For God cannot be contained in buildings made with hands. Right? Acts 17, God dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with me. But the architectural form is intended to convey a certain atmosphere that you're in the presence of something that is not normal or ordinary. And it is common to feel a sense of intimidation in the presence of the holy. Intimidation. You know, I think, okay, I don't want to speak up. I don't want to say anything. Have you ever noticed how people behave themselves better as a rule in court or in church than they do out on the street corner or on the playground? <laughs> do you know why that is? Because you realize that you're in the presence of the holy. The whole space is intended to communicate the idea of the sacred. Well, what I'm saying, dear friends, is God himself is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. And when we come into his presence, there is something that causes me to tremble and to fear. Psalm 4, 4 says, stand in awe before the presence of the Lord and like Job, lay your hand upon your mouth and be careful what you say because you're in the presence of the living God. And somebody says, Brother Mike, you're talking about the importance of reverence. And I, I see that. Although it's not popular today, but I want to feel loved. I want to feel like he's beautiful. 
But I'm telling you, there's a beauty to holiness. There's a beauty to the thought that God is not like us. Just like you may be intimidated in the presence of someone, some, another person that is especially attractive. And you say, I've never seen anybody as handsome as that man. And I don't know what to say. Or I've never seen anybody as beautiful as that lady. And I, don't, I can't even get my words out. I feel self-conscious. So my friends, you and I typically feel self-conscious when we first understand the holiness of God. But at the same time, that holiness is communicated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our representative. Psalm 110, verse 3, is a messianic psalm that speaks of Jesus as our king and our priest at the same time. And it says that when he works, his people are willing in the day of his power, and they worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Jesus Christ embodies the beauty of God so that we can say today, when we hear about Jesus, he's altogether lovely. Have you ever understood what Song of Solomon 5.16 means when the bride, the Shulamite, said about her Solomon, his mouth is most sweet, his hair is like fine wool. Yea, this is my beloved and this is my friend. He is altogether lovely. When I look at Jesus Christ by faith this morning, I have to tell you there is no flaw in him. Now, I have a few flaws. No amens, please. But I look in the mirror and I think, next life I want to be about five inches taller. <laughs> next life I want to have a coffee pot instead of a teapot face. Next life I want my hair to be a different color and to get rid of this cowlick. You know, we each have things about us that we wish were different. And you say, I feel like I have some flaws. Not only externally, but we all have character flaws, don't we? selfishness and deception and all of the things that are true about each of us. But may I say, when you look at Jesus, he's altogether lovely in body, soul, and spirit through and through every part of him, my friends, encapsulates the beauty of God. So that Isaiah 33, 17 says by way of prophecy, thine eyes, talking about to God's people, shall see the king in his beauty. You say, I see Christ on the cross, I see agony, I see shame, I see mocking, I see ridicule, I see defeat. But you know, if you truly understand what's happening at the cross, you have to say, I see beauty. You've probably heard the story of mother's scarred hands, about the mother that wore gloves all the time, and her little daughter grew up and never understood why her mother always wore gloves on her hands until one day, she begged her mother, please take off your gloves. Show me your hands. Why can't I see your hands? And her mother took off the gloves and her hands were disfigured and scarred. And the little girl shrunk in horror and cried out, Mother, those are the ugliest hands I've ever seen. Why are your hands so gnarled and scarred and twisted and torn? And mother told the story when her daughter was just a little infant. Lying in her bed, she smelled the smell of smoke during the wee hours of the morning, and she ran in, and with her bare hands, she smothered the flames and rescued her child and saved her child's life, and her little girl began to cry, and she said, Mother, those are the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. May I say, dear friends, when you look at Jesus carnally, there is no beauty that you should desire Him. 
But when you understand what He did on the cross for you, may I say, He is the most beautiful Savior. He is altogether lovely. Do you identify with that this morning, my friend? And then you say, Brother Mike, I'd love to see that beauty more often. You can encounter it in His church. Psalm 48 verse 2 says, Mount Zion is beautiful for situation. It's situated beautifully. Zion is, Psalm 50 verse 2, the perfection of beauty. And the reason is because it is His beauty that is seen here. Psalm 27 4 says it like this, One thing have I desired of the Lord. Now this is David's life goal. And he's summarized it all in terms of one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord. I wish we could say that today. Most of us say, I have many goals and dreams in life. I have many things I want. David said, I just want one. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. I'm going to go after, pursue it, seek after it. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Watch this. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know, the beauty of the Lord that is upon the church is the beauty of his grace. We are beautiful today. You are beautiful. I look at you, and you're all dressed differently, and you all have different features and, you know, different circumstances in life, but I look at this congregation today, and I, I see beauty here. It's not carnal beauty, but it is the beauty of holiness, the beauty of grace, because his victory has changed and transformed your lives. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, says the psalmist. Therefore, we're to worship in a manner that is consistent with the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord, says our text, in the beauty of holiness. Ezra 7 verse 27 says it like this, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this into the king's heart, says Ezra, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. You know, the king had given his endorsement to do renovations and remodeling, to make the house of God more beautiful. You say, well, Brother Mike, it doesn't matter what your facility is like to worship the Lord. Yes, that's true. But God deserves our best effort. Within the boundaries of Scripture, we should do our best to make our singing beautiful, to keep our sanctuary clean and well-manicured and operative. We should put forth an effort to tend public worship, to participate in the church, to give as the Lord has prospered us. Mediocrity is not a spiritual virtue. It's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. The Lord deserves excellence. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Holy, holy.